The company Continue has a new take on the resale marketplace. By partnering with brands and pulling post-purchase data on their platform, this innovative solution simplifies and enhances the resale process, empowering consumers to participate in a more sustainable and circular economy. Richie Ganey and Harry Riley are the co-founders of Continue, and they join us in this episode. We uncover how this startup is revolutionizing the way we consume and recycle products. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Jeff Hemmen. Check the show notes for more information on Jeff's work and where to find him. Richie Ganey, Harry Riley, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, not too bad. So you are, you have just launched your app on both iOS and Android, and your website's been live for a while also. Uh, you are the co-founders of a company called Continue. Tell me about Continue. What does it do? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So uh, Continue basically plugs a big gap in the market. So um, our main objective is to connect retail to resale. So at the moment, uh, selling online your clothes or, or whatever the product may be is really manual process so let's say for instance you buy a jumper from a brand you want to sell it on a resale platform you've got to take photos you've got to add right descriptions colors sizes categorization whereas what we do is at the point of purchase of that new item we actually connect with the retailer so when you purchase that product we pull all of the data from the retailer digitize the product and add it to your what we call a continue wardrobe because we're focusing on fashion at the moment so then a few months later down the line when you want to sell that product swipe of a finger we use all the brand imagery descriptions sizes categorizations um we populate that so literally just a swipe of a finger choose your price and it's on the market so we basically uh we take about a 12-step process into into two steps uh and and then the retailer also gets a nice little kickback every single time the product's resold so it's it it works well for both both shareholders so if i resell a sweater on uh, continue then a cut of that money goes to uh, the original makers of the sweater is that correct that's correct yeah yeah the buyer the buyer pays the the transaction fee so you'll get 100% of the transaction fee as the, as the seller and the buyer pays um it's it's around eight percent, so so a percentage will go to the retailer, and, and we'll take a little percentage to cover our costs. I see. And could that incentivize companies to make their products last even longer, though, if they see that if they're being sold on more, uh, if they last longer than many of the clothes that we see in fast fashion, um, and if they get a cut each time they change hands, could that be a positive incentive? you think, for companies to invest more in the quality and durability of their products? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's it, because it's, it's such a new concept and, the, and a company is just now is just so used to making money once off the new sale, whereas um, as I'm sure you and your users have heard of the term circular circularity, it's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're, making, we're circular, circularizing the products post-sale, so they're making money every single time the product resells. So yeah, we absolutely see that that could be a possibility of creating more durable products because they they're now um, making money, you know, not just on the first purchase but potentially years after. Yeah, and it's a trend that they 
that is really kind of unstoppable at the moment. It's one that, from the feedback that we've got, that, well, every retailer we've spoken to is something they really want to get involved in. They want to stay ahead of the curve. Um, you know, hardly ever we heard the retailers saying that, well, I mean, some of them, you know, might not be in a position to do something like this right now, but never have we heard that it's not something that they would want to do or something. It's not the way it's going. It seems pretty accepted that that's, that's, that's the way it's going. And when you sell on uh, an item, you don't only send them money, but you also give them data, which uh, is often described as, as their modern currency. Isn't that right? What kind of advantages do you think uh, companies can obtain from having trusted information about the life cycle of their products once they leave their uh, warehouses? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And so, um, there's a couple of things we we only provide aggregate high level data back to the uh, to the brands so we don't we, we never provide personally identifiable consumer data back to the brands um but there's lots of metrics that we can provide such as uh ownership life cycle ownership how long they own the brands for what demographics are buying these brands which which products are doing well on the resale platform but also a lot of the um, new fashion trends that you see derive from previous trends you know you see flares coming back in fashion so being able to predict what the next trend is based on resale patterns is incredibly useful for brands because it means that they don't have to produce stock that isn't in season isn't in trend they can actually then start focusing on stock that is going to sell um uh, but and there, there are there are lots of other uh, data points thousands of data points that we can provide to the retailer so as we progress over the next year and two we're going to get a lot of feedback from retailers what they want to see what they don't want to see and what's useful so we'll suddenly be building up that dashboard that we've created over the next year or so yeah it'll definitely be a challenge building the retailer dashboard because it's going to be so specific to what each retailer wants you know, some might be more interested in the in the monetization part of it you know they might be more keen on on that side and some of them might really want to see you know the trends to ensure that they're staying ahead of the curve and you know for example if something's not being, if it isn't very good for resale, they might decommission a certain product or if one's really good, they might use more of them. I don't know. It, some, it's going to be different for each retailer and we're going to have to, you know, build that entirely driven by the feedback. Yeah, of course, that'll, that'll be up to each each company to decide how they want to interpret the data and what they want to do with it and how they want to position themselves as a brand. So what brought the idea about? It sounds like it's, um, well, it, it sounds really obvious in hindsight, like many good ideas do, um, but obviously it wasn't. Um, what gave you the idea finally to say, actually, this is something that is needed in the world and we could do it? Yeah, it's, it, it, I think my, personally for me, my, my, my kind of intrigue and fascination of resale uh, happened when I left college. So I set up a a small retail business. Um, I did that for about six years, but I always remember uh, looking on on the eBay and Gumtree and seeing seeing some of our homeware products selling on there. And I was just I was just intrigued as to what happened to the product after the sale and the life cycle and who owns it. But it's very primitive thoughts back then. This is before you know the major resale platforms started appearing. Um, then I went on to to co-found another company called Spirit AI. It was in a completely different space, looking at toxicity and abuse in online games communities. Um, and last year that was acquired. So 
it was during that process that I was looking at, I wanted to get back into a startup and, and this kind of came back around. It was actually during COVID when my, when my sister was looking for a bike for her daughter. Um, she she lit, literally there was none on eBay, any of the major resale platforms. And I was thinking that there must be thousands of unused children's bikes sitting in garages and sheds, but they're just not available. So I started thinking about the digitization of products post-purchase, started looking into this space again and and just realized that it wasn't being done. Um, so, so decided to launch it at the beginning of last year and she was one of the first people that I, I, I talked to about it. We met about four years ago, Richie and I, on software engineering school and we always said that we'd like to do a startup together. So he's, he's one of the first people that contacted and, and just kind of rolled with it from there and started doing our, our research and, and, and sort of building out the product quite early on and kind of grew from there. I was just waiting, just waiting a couple of years for, for Harry to come up with a good idea. And I was like, he'll come up, he'll, he'll, he'll come up with something. I'll just wait until he does. It's all about networking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't, don't need to be creative about that. So, but yeah, yeah, you reached out last year. When was it? About, probably about this time last year, right? Yeah, yeah, April time. And loved it, yeah. Always said that, you know, if we're going to business together, well, we actually, we always said we will go into business together. And if we do, it will be in something, something sustainable, something circularity, some sort of problem around that that we want to solve. And, and, um, and yeah, loved it. Loved it. So, so, um, packed it up, moved home. He was, he was staying in, in, uh, New York at the time on a very nice salary. And I decided to poach him and, pay him absolutely peanuts to come back and live in London. <laughs> yeah, do you want to get paid nothing and work seven days a week? Yeah, that was decent. Speaking of knowing all the right people, uh, I think a nice segue now into how did you go about fundraising? Was there a lot of support from people? Was the the kind of sustainability and circularity of the the idea, the concept something that helped you raise funds or is, is that not really too influential when it comes to uh, investors actually opening their wallets? That's a good question. Yeah, I think it depends on who, which investors we were talking to. It definitely helped with with a, with a few of our current investors. Um, they come from sustainability backgrounds, sustainability companies. So that was that was a, bi a big benefit to them. But but others, um, obviously, they, they care about sustainability, but it's it's not their core core focus. So um, it's a real mixture, really. We we started fundraising. Uh, about a year ago, didn't we, Richie? It's been it, it was it was about a, a nine month process, um, uh, and and some it's a mix really of 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 people that we know, networking. So we had a, a an in, a couple of investors from my previous startup invested in this, a couple of Rich's contacts, a couple of my other contacts, and then just really just running a campaign um, using traditional spreadsheets, LinkedIn, couple. Uh, of search tools that helped us just running a campaign and finding out who uh who's interested it's 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 tough to raise it's a pre-seed round we pre-product pre pre-revenue so you've really got to sell the vision so a lot of storytelling there's no metrics involved there's there's obviously industry-wide metrics that you can use but there's no internal metrics that you can use it it really is about storytelling selling the problem selling the solution selling the team um but it's 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 good. You 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 gain a lot of feedback. You you also expand your network doing it. We've got a lot of 
a lot of investors warmed up for the for the next raise, which will be next year. Um, so it's just got its advantages as well. Yeah, and we we, you know, we obviously self aware about the, you know, our areas of expertise and and areas that we're not we're not um, you know, we're not so trained up in, and we really wanted to make sure that we leverage some some experience out of this as well. So you know, I think we did quite well in in getting smart money in. So you know, all of our investors they've got really good experience in in different areas in sales in marketing and strategy and um you know we've managed to, to leverage that to sort of you know fill in the gaps in our own knowledge so that's been really helpful so far so you've mentioned uh the sales marketing and so on what about technology um do you want to uh just well introduce yourselves i think uh, 15 minutes in is maybe not the right word but talk to your own backgrounds when it comes to tech uh, and did you get anyone else in a consultant or an investor um, to kind of uh, advise on on which technology stack to use and uh, yeah yeah so I mean my my technical background really just goes back um, back to makers so that's where Harry and I met at, at makers academy and um I mean, it's it's a software engineering course, so you learn it's full stack. You learn JavaScript um, and Ruby, um, and at the end you do a project, and, and and then you get a job after that. And most people go into into the software engineering roles. I actually went into a DevOps role uh, where we met Jeff. Although I don't think we actually ever worked on a project together, did we? Um, but yeah, I basically did another makers at um, at ECS when I joined ECS with, with you. Did another makers academy but for devops so six months of three months of software engineering three months of devops and then i really just did that for the next three years and it was i, I really kind of fell out of programming you know still still bash scripting still python scripting but really um you know i worked on a couple of projects um at ecs and that was very compartmentalized you know really just managing a couple pipelines on some of my work doing a bit of infrastructure coding terraform that kind of thing and when I moved to New York, I really got down and dirty with with DevOps. I was managing managing all of their production infrastructure. I was doing building their CI/CD pipelines, writing the Terraform code, um, you know, trying to automate everything, managing um, AWS costs. You know, it was a big big project on on AWS cost management, so that was really helpful. So, so when yeah, when I started on started coding again with with uh, with Harry it really was a requirement that I get back into that. I couldn't just be a DevOps guy, you know, I had to, I had to start coding again. So started doing that last year and it was all TypeScript. Um, Harry will talk more to that. Um, but yeah, it, it was all TypeScript. So, uh, kind of leveraged my JavaScript, you know, I kind of always kept up a little bit of JavaScript and obviously it's a superset of JavaScript. So, so I already, I could kind of hit, you know, hit the ground running with that. Um, I love it like getting back into it it's it's so good uh, i really do i'm not even sure which one i like more now you know i, I don't know i really i love i love programming but i also love the what between bit. typescript and javascript no sorry um like doing sort of devops doing devops work and doing pure sort of functional programming um obviously doing both now and i love it when i do both so i think i'll always have to, to remain a, a jack of all trades somewhat as opposed to kind of specializing in one. When you say functional programming, you mean programming in the functionality? Yeah, so actually, actually, 
you know but because there's also functional programming where everything arrived as a function with like that's, languages like lisp that's not what you meant right so yeah I, I meant like that yeah so for oh really so for, your for, for our microservices okay so you you're going all uh functional programming then no classes all functions yeah. interesting all right as pure as we can get them yeah all right tell me more i know very little about functional programming I had a class at uni, um, which somehow I'm passed, like all of the others, and then I haven't touched it since. Uh, so if I can understand what it's about, then so can our listeners. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's so there's, there's kind of two core paradigms. You've got functional programming, and then you've got your OOP class-based programming, and which is super super um, popular, and still is today, but. I, I learned functional programming coming out of makers, like like Rich said where we met. I I, I went back into my startup, um, and was was writing functional programming uh, in TypeScript. It's basically yeah, as you as you were saying, just just using functions versus classes, and we use TypeScript so we have uh, TypeScript interfaces and the models, um, and and there's obviously pure functional programming where everything is all the data that we use is immutable um and that's we we cheat sometimes where, where necessary but as it's as pure as we can get it in the state that we are um all of the data is immutable so i don't know if you think about like a, a for loop your traditional for loop where you've got your three variables and you and you increment on the variable in your for loop we don't do things like that we use higher order functions in in typescript so maps and for eaches um all, all, all functions like that 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 mean mean it's it's immutable data i see so that's a a core concept of functional programming then that your data is immutable i mean if you stick to pure form of functional programming yes is that right absolutely and does that mean there's a trade-off between uh, I'm going to say the issues you often get when your variables are not immutables, especially with concurrency, but also just with um, general logic oversights and, and syntactic sugar sometimes changing something. So the kind of robustness trade-off uh, on one side where you don't have to worry about these things as much, but on the other ha hand, it's likely then less memory efficient. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it probably is a little ma less memory efficient because you're obviously using memory to store new functions. And also, um, there probably is more lines of code because you're you're constantly uh, you're constantly creating new variables to house the new data that you've changed. Um, and so there probably are there probably are trade offs, but in my view, it's well worth it because the amount of bugs that that you come across because you've changed some data in 50 lines of code above in the scripts and you didn't realize you changed it in that way so it's really easy to pinpoint where a bug is within a script using good old console logs and you could just console log each function see which one changed oh that's the one so it's there are there are definitely pros and cons to it but it's just it's just it's just the par paradigm yeah, that we've decided that, that to follow really... and to be honest I, I, I always have yeah, that's been a really super helpful one, actually. Um, especially, you know, the, the, the debugging side of it, purely because because we're just we're writing so much code at the moment. We're not really maintaining. We're building, 
and you know slapping console logs everywhere and we're and it's just it's been so helpful from that standpoint um you know i don't know how much time it would have added on if we if we didn't if we didn't have that if we didn't have that ability to do that or that visibility within our code so in the end it's a trade-off you see some positives you think uh probably rightly that it introduces fewer bugs but at the end of the day i assume it's fair to say that it's mostly come down to a personal preference and i suppose as someone who wants to create something you also at some point which i personally always struggle with at some point you have to say i'm going to stop deliberating over this i'm just going to pick one option and go with it and actually build value was that part of the decision process as well because i can just imagine myself um doing three months of research onto which exact dialect and libraries of which programming languages would be best suited so that i don't run into problems in the next three years but then three years later i wouldn't still have or not written a single line of code for for this particular problem uh no because only because i'd 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 spent the last four years writing functional programming in typescript so i was i was I was pretty confident with it. I was pretty confident that I like the paradigm. For other things that <laughs> decision making, I'm usually a lot less uh, uh, thorough than you. It's usually a couple of looking at a couple of blogs on Medium, going, "Yeah, that'll do. Let's run with it." <laughs> and has that ever backfired? Has there ever been a time when you thought, actually, I really should have invested considerably more time into research, or is it usually? um the the better option to just start and then refactor if you know what the issues are yeah i don't know richard maybe you have a different experience to me but I, it's I, you know i'm somewhat being somewhat facetious reading a couple of blogs but there's a bit more to it because you read a couple of blogs you look at the libraries that they're using the packages you go on npm you have a look see how many weekly downloads they've got see you know, how many commits are or when was it last committed and then you make your decisions really based on that um yeah. Yeah, Richie. I don't know if you ever. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, like you know, we we all know that we we generally gravitate more towards more towards our you know the, the tools that we've been using in our experience because it's way quicker, isn't it? And and we know we know how to use them. It's way quicker, and the, and you know we don't really have the gift of time at the moment. Um, and so maybe we maybe we've gravitated more towards towards what we know, but at the same time, yeah, I think we you know we're. Um, we definitely do our research into 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 what we what packages we want to use. And to be honest, when I first joined, you know, I'm mainly on on the on the software development side of things, you know, Harry already started on it. Um, he'd already been programming for four years. I I just took I took his lead on it, really, and trusted it, and it, and it's and it's worked well. And you know, he's done the same for me. I brought every all of the infrastructure, all of the observability, monitoring, everything. I brought over, you know, my experience and my tools. And I've had no one, there's no one else here that knows it. So I've had no sort of challenges on that. And Harry, you know, vice versa has taken my lead on it. So I don't know, maybe one day we'll hire some people and they're like, what the hell are you doing? I don't know, but, but you know, we've generally taken each other's lead on it and it's, yeah. and it's worked quite nicely. Um, and, it, and it's allowed us to develop this thing, you know, with relatively quickly, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you said maybe someday you will hire people and they'll say, what on earth have you done? But I think that's a win because at least you have done something successful enough to hire someone to tell you that it won't scale. But you've gotten there. But yeah. <laughs> but 
<laughs> you've, you've created a monster. What is this? Um, but I, I think just touching on Rich's point, we've we've been really fortunate because my background is really full stack. So I do quite a bit of front end work, but also quite a bit of back end work. And Richie um, is also now absolutely full stack, but he brings a lot of that infrastructure DevOps side. So between us, we've been able to develop quite a sophisticated marketplace and we can go through the tech stack um, if you want us to, uh, just between two of us over a year. So we've been very, very fortunate to have covered all of those bases and not have to have hired outside help. Yeah, so let let us uh, go to the tech stack. So the back end is uh, TypeScript, you say. Um, that's, I'm so bad at the front end stuff. You need something to run the TypeScript on the back end. Is that what this Node.js thing is? TypeScript, Node.js on the back end. I mean, so it's TypeScript across the stack. So we're using React Native on the front end for the um, for the mobile application, and that's all TypeScript. And then we have TypeScript on the back end with with Node.js as well. Okay, nice. And then in terms of all the hosting and uh, logging, monitoring, that kind of stuff, uh, gives a run through. That's all. So we're just at AWS right now, um, but we've built in such a way where we 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 will move to be cloud agnostic at some point when it when it when it's necessary um but it's we're hosting everything on kubernetes so we're using we're using kubernetes we're using managed we've gravitated more towards managed services again because they're pretty cost efficient and they're quick and they're easy and they require low maintenance um you know again referring back probably going to be a broken record soon but referring back to you know the fact that we don't have a lot of time relative to some other companies and it's it's so easy you know i don't know well, actually, yeah, you're you're a DevOps guy. You know about managed services and AWS. It's you know it makes it really simple. So, um, yeah, we're using Kubernetes cluster, managed managed Kubernetes, um, managed document DB for the back end. Don't have to worry about getting pinged about a node going down at night and me having to get up at three in the morning and try and fix it. You know, I can pay maybe a couple couple of dollars extra and get and get AWS to handle that. What else for the sort of back end? We're using SQS for our messaging as well. So for our messaging across our microservices. Yeah, you said you're doing microservices. You're decoupling them with uh, SQS. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's SQS and SNS uh, from the microservices. But the microservices, I mean, we could probably spend the whole other podcast talking about the challenges and, yeah. and uh, building out building out the services. There's, there's so much to it. But um, we think we made the right decision again. It comes it comes back to reading a few articles. I did actually spend quite a bit of time, but did, did quite a lengthy course in in um, microservices. So I, I'd spend about six months studying studying the uh, the framework. That was one thing I did do thoroughly, and we're we're pretty happy with it. I mean, there's there's so many advantages to to running a microservices environment. Um, you know, all of the business logic rests in each service. It's completely independent from other services. Um, there's a lot of data duplication, um, which we've refined over the last year. So there are challenges. There's challenges in asynchronicity and 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 things like that. But overall, I think I think we've made right, the right decision because it's so scalable. Whenever we bring some some new business logic in, we can just spin up a new service relatively quickly. Yeah, I might take you up on that offer to have a whole other podcast just talking about uh, the microservices stuff. Um, then let's get back a bit to the kind of overall uh, business aspect. 
Um, you mentioned that this might also change the way uh, companies handle returns, and we've talked very briefly before uh, we hit record. We record um, about returns being uh, a problem for many retailers nowadays. Can you touch back on that again? Yeah, so it's something that we we um, looked into a lot last year, and it is something that's on our roadmap for this year. Is the the big problem with with retailer returns, and it's and it's kind of the the medium to large retailers is if you buy a top from High Street Brand X and you decide to return it, most people think that the top gets returned to the brand and they they re warehouse it and it's all tickety boo, but actually a lot of the time that doesn't happen the the t-shirt gets returned it's called reverse logistics the t-shirt gets returned to um the courier company and they'll the courier company will just put all of the returns from that brand onto one pallet and then you get what what are who are called jobbers traders they'll come into the warehouses they'll say right this pallet of return stock at brand x is worth ten thousand rp we're going to give you 15 percent of that and so the, the retailers tend to go for the option because of the cost it it because of the, how much of the cost it takes bringing it back into the warehouse repackaging it put it putting it back and it actually costs more to do that so they send they sell it for about 15% of rrp on average to traders so these jobbers uh, who, who who might buy it is that companies like tk maxx who will then sell them on or i mean i imagine a lot of the goods on the pallet would be broken and, and mostly unusable without a lot of effort what what yeah. happens to the clothes or is it a matter of disposing of it yeah i'm not so sure what tk maxx's model is and maybe they do something similar but these are more these are more very small companies um they come in they'll they'll have a look they'll buy they'll buy the pallet they'll break it down they'll go through it they'll you know separate the the broken stock from the good stock and then they'll just go and sell it at auction houses they'll sell it on ebay they'll sell it on resale platforms themselves or they'll sell it on to then another company who then does that so now these are these are these are small organizations small companies doing this right um so that's the problem so so where we come in uh is and we've spoken to quite a few retailers who are interested in this is is when when someone purchases the product we digitize the asset we put it into their continued wardrobe and they think right okay it, it you know I, I don't want this product and up to 70 percent of clothing is returned due to size and fit not actually because of defects yes yeah, it's, it's it's a massive percentage um you know I, this this doesn't fit me i don't like it i want to return it but instead of returning it there could be a possibility of we call it forward returns that continue. So you actually post it on the marketplace at, let's say, for instance, the 70% of RRP. So it's still significantly more than the 15% the retailers are getting. And then there's a split between the consumer and the retailer. Perhaps the, consu the retailer takes a 60% split of, and, the, and the consumer takes a 40% split of the 70% RRP. Um, as it goes into circularity, then the, the, the digitized asset stays within the circular economy. It's tracked. Um, and it's just a much cleaner method. You're not dealing with the returns. You're not dealing with um, uh, with with the, with the large pallets and all of the waste that's included with 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 uh, with the returns. So it's definitely an angle that we see going forward. Probably mid to late this year, we'll start start building out that functionality. So if I want to buy a dress from uh, uh, what did you say, Brand X, yeah. I might as well go on to uh, continue and see if 
someone is literally selling it brand new with tags, size M, runs large, and then I know, okay, well, I'm a bit larger than an M usually, so this one might fit me and I can buy the brand new pretty much almost directly from the company through one intermediary um, yeah. piece of clothing at a huge discount and, and without without it going to, to landfill or whatever happened to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And and, and it's all, it, if you download the app, you can actually see all of the product history. So I could see the, you know, you, Jeff, you purchased that from Brand X in the last 20 days. I know that you've just purchased it because it's all the data integrity is there. It's all verified. Um, and so I can be rest assured and perhaps, you know, display some data saying this is, this is instead of being returned, we're selling this product. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that's what really helps. It is that data integrity which helps boost that RRP because, you know, can you imagine if you're you're filling at fifteen percent as versus, you know, potentially forty, fifty percent from what we're from what we're modelling? You can imagine how much of an incentive it is to process those returns through us as opposed to sticking it in a warehouse somewhere. So one of the other questions that relates to the kind of higher order business in in, in as, as opposed to the kind of lower level tech stuff is the usual chicken and egg problem. So you have a, a model that sounds really, really sound uh, to me and probably to most people that you explain it to. Um, but if people now go on the app, there probably won't be uh, all of the retailers they want uh, onboarded yet and there won't be a huge marketplace of, of users yet, um, which is that problem of we'll have more users once we have more users so how do we get more users that kind of stuff how is was that a problem for you how do you go about navigating that i mean yeah it is a i think it's a problem for any any company at our stage but we've got to get quite creative you know with this kind of thing i don't think we're going to be able to you know i don't think we're going to be able to grow our user base um you know significantly with just conventional methods but so that's why we get creative. I think, you know, the people that are buying these products, you know, a lot of feedback that we're getting, we get great feedback through social media. We, we actually have a feedback form in the app where you can submit feedback and people have been great and they're submitting their feedback and, you know, people want this and, and by partnering with the retailers, you know, that it's in their best interest to, to market this, if you will, for want of a better term, to market this and to promote it, you know, to their customers as well. Um, so you know, you have that great consumer acquisition channel through the retailers as well, which is not really something you would usually get, but if it was a normal, quote unquote, marketplace. Um, I mean, that, that, I would suppose what you say, Harry, that's probably, you know, one of the main, one of the main consumer acquisition methods for us is really to promote and, and work with these brands to promote it as well. You know, it is really mutually beneficial. We're seeing it more as a partnership as opposed to them being our clients. You know, we can, as our user base grows, we can help them as well. We can help them promote their brand internally on our side and, and they can do the same for us so we can really leverage that yeah the one of the it's it's one of the the um most efficient consumer acquisition channels is from the retailers rich you say you know it's in the retailers interest to to promote this and market this to their consumers because it's ultimately you know it's 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 green credentials for the retailer um uh and then and then we're also doing a lot with with influencers um We've got we've got someone really good who's influencing, uh, managing our influencing on on TikTok. They are uh, we've already had hundreds of downloads and active users just from from her posting on on TikTok. So it's definitely a strategy um, 
through uh, uh, social media channels, but also SEO, in-app SEO, App Store SEO. There's there's lots we can be doing. We're a small team, so we, it's it's always a challenge where you spend your time. You spend your time engineering the product. You spend your time uh, marketing the product, sales. So it's it's a bit of a balance. But I think as we go, we'll find that footing, and and I think through our brand partnerships, we'll uh, we'll see a lot of consumers downloading the app. We're gonna get Harry. Uh, we're gonna get Flyering as well. And what about geographical? considerations i expect that uh, a product like your service right your your app which has a geographical component in that one user will most likely ship something to another user where proximity matters yes um, how do you kind of consolidate that with um the kind of marketing channels like influencers which i assume are much more global uh than Possibly, I suppose, brands can do localized targeted advertising. Um, do you have a couple of markets that you try to uh, prioritize or are you doing a kind of across-the-world rollout? Will have anyone who's happy to jump on board? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's you know, as, as a startup, naturally you want global expansion, every single vertical. It's it's really, it's and it's really hard to fight that. We had to do it in previous startup. Um, and it, and it's a lot of, it's a trap that a lot of startup founders fall into is, is, is being too broad. And you could argue even that we're being too broad just within fashion because we could target a sub-vertical such as, I don't know, children's clothing, for instance. We could target that first, but we've decided to go a little broader with fashion. Um, so, so in terms of in terms of our, our key target, it is the fashion industry. We're seeing a lot of interest from other verticals, so we will ex look to expand later this year. Um, but we've got to take it slow due to you know even like the categorization took us ages just to map the categories in clothes. We've got men, we've got children, we've got women, we've got all gender brands. So even that's a, 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 a task in itself. And I imagine taking that and, and doing homeware, you know, think of all of the things that we own in our home. So we've got to be a little careful in terms of how quickly we expand into other verticals, industries. And then in terms of geographies, UK first, uh, with a view to expanding into um, probably North America and Europe. The problem with Europe is, is localization in different languages. Um, but also, like you said, is is the um, is the shipping. You know what we don't want to do is have a product surfaced on continue, and someone's in Detroit and someone is in Sheffield, and they buy the product and find out oh you're halfway around the world. And because we're we're automating the packaging and shipping for users in the UK, there'll be some services that aren't available in, for instance, North America. Um, as we roll that out, but then you know we'll it, it, it gradually expand those services uh, as 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 we expand. So it's a, it's a tricky one. I'm glad you asked because it it is tough fighting that urge just to go global, full hog, all verticals. Be be that be a be like an eBay type of business, but you've got to you've really got to be careful. For my own mental well-being i refuse to end podcast on a question on of how brexit affects all of this so let's not even go there because i i can't imagine it helps a lot 
But uh, yeah, so the the influencer uh, who's got you are hun- hundreds of of downloads already. Were those yeah. localized? Was that do do influencers on TikTok have a um, geographic? Uh, to call skewerage? Do they skew to certain geographies, or is TikTok always worldwide? I'm I'm too old to know. Uh, I'm I'm too old to know, and I also don't know enough about the space. I I I think that their following is is usually probably local-ish. I'm sure I'm sure influencers do have um, a global audience, but the majority of them are based in the UK. It's certainly from what we've been seeing from our downloads is that they're all based in the UK. But it is something, actually, I haven't actually considered that before. So it's something that we'll have to look into in terms of their following. And, but we do always post, you know, it's available on, you know, Apple Apple Store and Google Play in the UK only. We do say that. And we, we have had a couple of friends and family saying, oh, try to download it from Luxembourg, but it's not available yet. So we do, we do come across that. Well, I, I managed to I managed to download it in Luxembourg, but I think that's because Google, for some reason, despite my repeated best efforts, still thinks I'm in the UK. So in this case, I could download the app, but sometimes I can't download my own internet banking apps, which is arguably more frustrating. Well, there you go. Lucky you. You could spend the day and continue today. That's that. I couldn't. Richie Gani and Harry Riley, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And... I'm looking forward to our second episode all about the challenges of microservices. Me too. Thanks so much for having us, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure.